0: Before I kind of teach the, the section of scripture that I want to teach you not, I want to make sure you understand kind of the context of who's speaking, you know, with you. Is that I was born and raised in Amarillo, Texas. And growing up in Amarillo, Texas, just a little bit about my family. My mom and dad got divorced. My, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about three. And my mom won custody of me. I lived with her for a couple years. I got to be this rough and tumble boy at five years old. My mom is about five foot one, probably weighs about 100 pounds. And I think she realized it was going to be tough for her to take care of me. So she allowed me to go back and live with my father. And my father realized that I needed a mother figure. So I'm living with him and he realized that I need a mother figure. So we moved in with my grandmother. And so my grandmother, I call her Meemaw. And I'm a big time Meemaw's boy, just so you know. I would not be here talking to you tonight if it wasn't for the love, support, encouragement, and prayers of my grandmother. And my grandmother's a Baptist Sunday school teacher. So living with a Baptist Sunday school teacher... Here's what happens. You go to church on Sunday morning. We went back on Sunday night. We went to church on Wednesday night. And she actually worked an extra job so that I could also go to Christian school. So I was entrenched in, let's just call it the Christian culture. And then also what happened is every single time being a a, a kind of rough and tumble kid as I got to be six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, every single time this, this group called the Power Team would come to town. I don't know if you've heard about them. They have different groups, but they're the guys that run in with freezers on their back, run into stadiums with a freezer on their back. They're the guys that you throw a Coke can, they catch it, and it explodes in their hand. They're the guys that put blocks of ice on the stage, and they run through and put their shoulder through blocks of ice. They're the guys that they put 250 pounds on the bar, and they'll curl it 10 times in a row. So as a little boy, I was just totally amazed by that. And at the end of that, they would curl 250 pounds 10 times, and then they would say, you know, they would talk about Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so, of course, as, you know, as an 8-, 9-, 10-year-old, every single time the power team came to town, I was going, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I was just going to ask you to come into my heart. I cannot tell you at Christian school how many times I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I can't tell you how many times the power team, seeing these feats of strength, that I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I was part of Bible drill team where what that means, if you don't know what that is, I was part of this group and you'd hold your Bible and we'd memorize the books of the Bible and they would say, you know, Job, and then I would open it up. And whether I was there or not, you acted like you knew where it was at. And if they call on you and they ask you to read whatever Job chapter two, verse 10, you had to be able to read it because you were there. And sometimes they would ask you to read it. I'm like, eh, I don't have it, (laughs) right? So that was, again, I tell you, that was just the culture that I grew up in, this Christian culture. And what that ended up leading to was, Me feeling like that I was a Christian because my family was a Christian. Because it was the culture that I grew up in. And then what happened when I got to be 16 years old, this church that I was going to at the time, people encouraged me to get baptized. And the way it was phrased to me, though, that I needed to get baptized because if I didn't get baptized, that I wasn't going to be able to go to heaven. So I thought, well, I have to get baptized because I want to go to heaven. I want to spend forever with God. So it's like, well, I better check that box. So when I was 16 years old. I stood up in front of the whole entire church, and they asked me, do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave? Yes. Do you believe he's your Lord and Savior? Yes. Okay. So I went and put my robe on, put me in the tank, you know, put their hand over my mouth, dunked me. I came out, you know, they clapped. Everybody's all excited. 16 years old. The next day, I'm going to school. Nothing changed in my life. I was still selfish. I was still, in many ways, addicted to myself. I was still drawing all my value from football and wrestling, all these other things. I still was not watching the words that I used. I still wasn't you know, loving other people, treating other people the way I want to be treated, but, but I got dunked in this tank. And I was growing up in this Christian culture. So what ended up happening, again, I'm thinking, well, I got baptized, so I'm for sure going to heaven. There's kind of this like, well, again, I've, I'm checking these boxes. I'm growing up in the Bible belt. Boxes being checked. Okay, I'm in good shape. Well, then what happened is that I moved to West Philadelphia. I got accepted to the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School of Business. I had the opportunity to wrestle for the University of Pennsylvania during that period of time. So you can imagine kind of a country boy from Amarillo, Texas, to move into West Philly. That was quite a culture change for me, right? My my white rice and iced tea became white rice and iced tea. When I would say things back home, I'd say, man, that's nice. That's so nice. I'd say it up here, and people are like, what? I'm like, it's nice. Sorry, it's nice. So, after a while, I got sick of repeating myself. So, I started actually speaking more where people could understand me, right? So, there's this culture shock that took place. But there's also this culture shock that took place because I started spending time with people. They were valedictorians, salutatorians in their classes, really intelligent people. A lot of private schools they went to, public schools and private schools. But there was a lot of, people that I perceived were um, very driven, big dreams, really intelligent. And they started asking me what I believed. And so when I would tell them that I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, when I would tell them that I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, there was lots of people that would look at me like I was um, weak, like I was crazy to think that. And they'd actually use those terms that that's that religion stuff, that Christianity stuff, that's the opiate to the masses. They would say that. You really believe that? Like, don't you think that you're strong enough and smart enough that you can succeed on your own? Like, why do you really need that stuff? And by the way, I don't know if you've been paying attention to, in general, our universities all across the country. It's not just at one of them. I would say it's at most of them. And I kind of succumb to that temptation of thinking, well, like, I am strong enough. I am tough enough. I can do this. I'm a wrestler. I want to be a national champion. I want to be an Olympic champion. Why am I Why am I kind of leaning on this crutch of God? And so it's definitely a period of time I really regret. But that period of time in college, I just began to, to uh, really just live for myself. I didn't have a standard, a plumb line of truth in my life. It was really all about me, me, myself, and I. I thought that I was going to, I was gonna create the peace and success on my own. I could do it all by myself. And the more I started living my life that way, where it was all about me, it was all about my happiness, my success, I could do it on my own. The more I started living my life that way, interestingly enough, is joy slowly but surely started seeping out of my life. And because what I really started worshiping, I started worshiping success. And when you're a wrestler, what I started worshiping was when I won wrestling matches, I was like, I was happy. I thought I was like, I thought I was cool. I thought it was important. But then when i lose wrestling matches, I thought I was horrible. I thought I was a failure. And so what ended up happening? I started living this, what I would say, a bipolar lifestyle of success. Oh, I'm good. When I would fail, like I'm horrible. Oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm horrible. Because huh? I was drawing all my value from winning. Athletic success, worldly success. And then what ends up happening is you start putting a lot of pressure on yourself because then it's it's all about you to succeed. There's nobody else going to help you because you have to do it totally on your own. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And as I started living my life that way in college, again, I just started having more and more stress, more and more anxiety because I started turning further away from God. Now, hear me say, I don't even know for sure if I had a genuine relationship with the Lord at that period of time. I had a belief, but I don't know how authentic and genuine it really was. But it was definitely going away as I started turning away from him. I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I got second in the NCAAs twice. And just so you hear me tonight, when I say anything that I've accomplished, I'm not telling you those things at all to brag. It's just part of the story. When I graduated from Penn, I had the opportunity to move out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So here I am, graduating from Ivy League school, going to the Wharton School of Business, moving out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. They moved me into my room. That next morning when I pulled the blinds, pulled the blind, the first thing that I saw was this 14,000-foot mountain. I don't know if you've ever been to Colorado Springs, but Pike's Peak sits right there. They call it America's Mountain. It's a gorgeous place. Most of the year, it's covered in snow. And God, the creator of the universe, began to really woo my heart. When I started pulling those blinds every morning and seeing that mountain, I believe that's when God really started pursuing me. He started pursuing me because he created me to adore his creation. And the more that I would get up in the mountains and the more that I would just see these trees and the fresh mountain air and do those things, there was, there was something that started causing me to look up more and to be more aware that life wasn't all about me. Because in my heart of hearts, I really did believe God created the heavens and the earth, And so he started wooing my heart. And when he started wooing my heart, what was really interesting about that is he started putting some people into my life. Again, he's sovereign. He's in control of this whole entire universe. It's his plan. He started putting certain people in my life for a reason. One particular day at the Olympic Training Center, it was on a Sunday, I'll never forget, I was uh, planning on sitting there, just kind of like, I trained all week, Sundays was our day off, so I was going to kind of just sit there and veg, I was going to watch a whole day of football, and I knew that there was this one pastor that was coming around the Olympic Training Center, and he'd always kind of try to corner, corner athletes and talk to them, and I was still kind of one to sidestep all of that. And every time he got near me, a lot of times I'd pick up my tray and I'd go the other direction, <laughs> This one particular Sunday where I was sitting, I didn't choose my seat wisely because I was in a corner where I couldn't get out because there were some other people around me, and here he comes. He's walking towards me. I'm like, oh, no. I'm going to have to have the the religious talk. He comes up to me, and um, it's really fascinating what he asked me. I was 22 years old then. And he said, hey, Brandon, I got a question for you. I just really, I, I've been wanting to ask you this for a while. And I said, you know, what is it? <sighs> he said, I just want to know, hey, what do you think your, your purpose is? And if you want to have fun, you know, ask like a teenager or 19, 20, 21-year-old most of the time what their purpose is. It's kind of fun listening to what they say. <laughs> and that time I was like, my purpose And I was like, well, I mean, tomorrow I have to lift at 9 o'clock. We're doing power cleans at 9. Like, I think I have eight sets in the morning. And then I have to wrestle at 3. And he goes, I'm just so thankful how he handled this. He could have kept talking to me for 20 minutes, which probably made things worse. But he goes, he's he's like, oh, so that's your purpose in life? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, okay. And he walked off, which is actually the smartest thing he could have done. And after he walked off, I started steaming inside. I remember walking back to my room. I thought, I just told that guy that my purpose was to bench. I just told that guy my purpose was just to shoot double legs. That's the only reason I'm here. And as I started thinking about that, again, God wooing me through his creation, me realizing what a ridiculous really answer that was. I started thinking, there's got to be something more than this. Yes, he's blessed me with this Ivy League education. I'm out at the Olympic Training Center, but there's got to be something more than this. And again, his timing, it was about two Sundays later, I actually uh, had a crush on this one particular girl. She was on the uh, women's volleyball team. And back then, the women's volleyball team trained at the Olympic Training Center you know, with the wrestlers, and they would always come in the cafeteria after they were practice, practicing, let's just call it, in their... Uh, volleyball uniform, let's just call it that, okay? And so they, w- they would come into the cafeteria, and I remember this one particular girl I had a crush on, and it was this one Sunday, I'm sitting there, I've got like my camo, you know, shorts on, flip-flops, tank top. Again, I'm going to do my Sunday veg again. And she comes up, she's, hey, hey, Brandon, I just want to know, would you, would you like to come to church with us? And again, I had a crush on her. I was like, well, church? I'd love to go to church with you. And she's like, well, it's, you don't have to really dress up but you should probably take the flip-flops and the camo shorts on, maybe, you know, change a little bit. And I was like, hey, no problem. I think back on this. This is. It hurts my heart to think about it, but I basically sprinted back to my room. I put on some khakis. I put on a, a shirt with a collar on. Here's some goofy stuff I did. I put my, my gold chain that had a cross around around my neck. I grabbed this Bible that I had not read in years, I grabbed my Bible, got my cross around my neck. I'm kind of dressed up. I'm kind of marching back to the front of the Olympic Training Center, right? They come to pick me up. I get in the car, and she's like, she's like oh, cool. Good job bringing your Bible. I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. And she said, hey, so, so you're a Christian? I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, my grandma was a Baptist Sunday school teacher. I went to Christian school, kindergarten through sixth grade. Got baptized when I was 16, right? Started rattling off this, like, Christian-like testimony, bragemony that I had. And she's like, oh, okay. So anyway... We pull up in front of this church, and this church was, was actually in a kind of a retail area right next to a bowling alley. And my Baptist upbringing, I say, uh, I was like, well, where's the church? And she's like, well, it's right here. I'm thinking, well, that's not a church. And I'll never forget what she said. She says, Brandon, church is not a building. It's a group of people. And I go, I'd never heard that before. And I was like, mm, that's interesting. I look on the top of the sign when I walk in, it says Rocky Mountain Calvary Chapel. Walk in the church, first guy I see has dreadlocks. Again, Baptist, you don't have a dreads coming to church. She's looking at me shaking her head. I see, I see like Asians, African-Americans, the, the Broncos were playing the, uh, the Dolphins that day. People had jerseys on, football jerseys. I'm thinking, you don't wear football jerseys to church. (laughs) They did, right? I walk in and turn the corner. There's this guy. He's got, you know, he's kind of bald. He's got a Fu Manchu. He's playing a harmonica. There's electric guitar. There's drums. And again, I'm thinking, it's rocking my world. I'm like, this is not church. This is... I finally sit down. Pastor starts teaching exegetically out of the Bible. God starts using that. His word starts penetrating my heart. And I started learning. The Bible for the first time in my life that day. And I was so excited, verse after verse, to take it in. And I wanted to know more. And what was interesting, that next Sunday, the girls' volleyball team, they're out of town. She wasn't even there, but it wouldn't have mattered. That next Sunday, I wanted to go to church on my own because I wanted to go to church. The next Sunday, I started taking some guys with me. And then, time after time, just learning, going through the Word, going through the Word. I don't know how long it was, but there was a period of time that pastor, he was in Matthew 10, 39, and he gets to that point where he said, Jesus said, if you cling to your life, you're going to lose it. But he also said, if you give it up to me, you're going to find it. And at that moment, I realized, that's all I've been doing my whole life, clinging on to my life, squeezing on my life as hard as I possibly can, making it all about me, trying to do this all on my own. And now I realize the more that I cling, the more that I squeeze, the more that's getting away from me, the less peace that I have. And there does have to be something more than this. And I just heard it. Jesus said, cling to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up to me, if you surrender to him, then you're going to find it. And at that moment, again, I told you, I probably asked Jesus to come to my heart, I don't know, 500 times growing up. At that moment, when I looked up, I just said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I want to receive you into my life. I surrender to you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to cling to my life anymore. I want to give my life fully and completely up to you because I believe you created the heavens and the earth. I believe you created me in your image. I believe the wage of sin is death, and you died for me on the cross. You paid that wage so I'd never have to pay it. And I made that decision at that moment. And it was genuine, it was authentic, it was real. And let me tell you what, some dove didn't ascend on my head. I didn't hear God's voice audibly or anything like that. It was just genuine, real belief and surrender to him. And I believe that moment, that's when I really authentically became a Christian. And tonight, kind of to finish this, What I want to talk about tonight is I think we need to really understand what genuine Christianity is, what real Christianity is, what authentic Christianity is. It's not this religion where you have to check the boxes. It's not this red brick white steeple building. It's not this formula per se that you have to follow. It's a person that we have to believe in and surrender to and follow for the rest of our life. That's what Christianity is. And so the rest of tonight, I believe we need to really understand that. And what I want to kind of title the rest of this is that I want to talk about kind of what I call 3D Christianity and and 3D, right? It's three-dimensional. Three-dimensional is really the way that it is. It's more clarity to the real image. And the reason I'm calling 3D Christianity as well is I want to take three words that start with the letter D and I want to teach you one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And I choose this verse as one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because I believe it explains genuine Christianity better than any other verse I've read. And I also choose this verse tonight, Romans 12.1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up. I heard somebody getting one earlier. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans 12.1. I'm also choosing Romans 12.1 because... This was a verse when I grew up going to Athletes in Action or FCA, and they would put it on a folder or something. Every time I read it, it was just so confusing to me. Every time I would read it, Romans 12, 1 says, Paul Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, and view of God's mercy to offer your lives as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Most of the time growing up, I was like, "I I, I said, what? (laughs) That's a lot of words that doesn't make any sense to me. But I believe when God gives you the gift of his spirit inside of you, and you start actually patiently exegeting God's word, taking it apart bit by bit, looking at the whole context, that's when he begins to speak to your heart. So I'm going to teach you that verse tonight, and I'm going to do it with three letters. The, the, the three words, <laughs> start with the letter D, are decision, discipline, and devotion. And so I just quoted that, that verse to you, and I think it's understand before we get to Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Anytime we see a verse in the Bible that uses that term, therefore, we have to understand what that word is there for. We have to understand the context of what came before that word to connect the dots and for it to make more sense. And so really quickly, Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans chapter 11, I'm going to give it to you briefly. You have to understand those 11 chapters to clearly understand Romans 12.1. Romans 1 through 11, the apostle Paul, as he goes to talk in Romans 3, he makes it real clear that Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying we're all condemned. He didn't say some have sinned, he said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word sin is the English word that means to miss the mark. So anytime you're shooting an arrow towards the bullseye, you miss it. And if we're really honest with each other, we've missed it tons of times in our life and we'll continue to. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's Perfect, pure glory. Then he goes on to say in Romans 6:23 that the wages of our sin is death. Comma, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostle Paul says the wage of sin is death. The reason he said that is because in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, he made it really clear in that chapter that if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So he says the wage of sin is death. God said that. And so if God is going to be a God of his word, if God's going to be a just God, then when we sin, someone has to pay that wage. If not, he's like, ah, the wage of sin is death. Ah, you don't really have to. That means God's a liar. Then you could attack him for not being a God of his word. But because he said the wage of sin is death, somebody has to die. Romans 6, 23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God, again, free gift of God, is eternal life through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. He paid that wage of death so we wouldn't have to pay it. That's where John 3:16 comes in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the, then the Apostle Paul goes on Romans 10:9 and 10. He said, if you're tracking with we were all sinners, Jesus paid that wage so we wouldn't have to pay it. If you're tracking with that, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, he says, you will be saved. And I love that because he doesn't just say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. He doesn't say that. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave. We know why that's important because a lot of people confess a lot of stuff. (laughs) with their mouth. I believe personally for me growing up, every time I was asking Jesus to come on my heart and when I got up and what I call got baptized when it really didn't mean anything, I think I was just confessing a bunch of stuff with my mouth. I don't really believe I was believing him deeply in my heart. Because when I got in that dunk take and I got dunked, it was not because I believed that I was standing there in my sin And when they put me underneath the water, that was dying to myself. Like, symbolically, Jesus died on the cross. And when you pull me out of that water, that I became a new creation in Christ. I didn't believe that when I was 16. I didn't get it. But I believe when I made that decision, the Calvary Chapel in Rocky Mountain, Calvary Chapel in Colorado Springs, I did get it. The Apostle Paul wants us to confess to our mouth, but also believe in our heart. And once we do that, then he says, Okay. Now, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act to worship. So here's where I'm going to teach this to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, I urge you. He's not saying, hey, you know, if you've got a few minutes, you know, if it's convenient for you in your busy life, once you've, you know, been on social media enough during the day and done what you wanted to do, if you could squeeze this time in, offer your life. Uh-uh. He's strongly commanding us. He's urging us to offer our lives. And what does that look like to offer our lives? Die to ourselves, Then become a new creation in Christ. To offer our life, it's a, it was a term, like a symbolic term, meaning in the Old Testament when they would offer the lambs and goats, the, the shed blood of the lambs and goats on the altar in the temple. It was like you're laying down your life. Don't cling to your knife. You'll lose it. You give it up to me. You will find it. Check one, two. There you go. All for your life is a living sacrifice. So here's the thing. We have to make a decision whether we're going to do that or not. Are we going to decide to live for ourselves? Again, it's all about us. I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I don't need these, this church stuff. I don't need, like, fellowship. I don't need any of this. I can do this all on my own, which, again, I live that life. It doesn't fulfill or bring you peace, and it's actually a, a beating, really. Or are we going to make this decision to lay down our life for Christ? That's the first word that starts the letter D, decision. Then he goes on to say you offer your life as a living sacrifice, right? Living, waking up every single day, we're continuing to live. What are these living sacrifices that we can make? What are these things we can continue to offer, to sacrifice in our life to Christ? I think those are things like Bible study, prayer, worship, fellowship, and if you're really honest with yourself, it takes discipline and sacrifice to study the Bible. Have you ever tried to say, oh, I'm going to wake up every single morning I'm going to study the Bible. Or it takes sacrifice and discipline to set aside time. I'm going to meet groups of people in fellowship. Hell meet you every Thursday night at 7 o'clock. It takes sacrifice to do that. It takes, if you've ever said, I'm going to have this disciplined prayer life. where this period of time, every single day, I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to pray to God. It takes sacrifice and discipline to do that. So I believe the living sacrifices that God calls us to are Bible study, prayer, worship, and fellowship. And that second D word, as I've used it already, is it takes discipline to do that. You can't just wing it. It takes discipline to study God's word, to pray to him, to commit to having fellowship with other believers on a frequent basis and then to worship him. And worship is awesome. It's a music, but worship is also just gratitude that this is a gorgeous sunset. Thank you so much for all you've done in my life. Thank you so much for my wife and my family that I have clean water at home and I have a warm bed. When I pray with my girls at night, we pray for like, thank you, Lord, that we have clean water. Thank you that we have a warm bed. And my girls are like, and toys. I'm like, okay, yeah, toys. Right. Thank you. Right. So worship is a sense of gratitude. I think that those are the living sacrifices. So Decision to offer your life, living sacrifice. the Bible study, prayer, worship, and fellowship. The last part of this verse is to offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I believe holy and pleasing to God, holiness, right? Holiness, purity, righteousness, rightness. That third D word is devotion. That means you live what you say. If you're going to say, I made a decision to follow Christ, I'm being disciplined with these living sacrifices, that I'm being devoted to do those 24-7. I'm not just doing those on Sunday when I come to church or Wednesday night, it's sizzling summer. That I'm doing those for the rest of my life. I'm devoted to live what I say. If you think about those words, decision, discipline, devotion, those really sum up that verse. And the last part of this talk, I've got about 10 more minutes left, this last part of this talk, I want to tell you about what happened when I made that decision, when I committed to that discipline, when I began to walk in that devotion. When I began to do that, you know what was interesting? My relationship with my friends got better. My relationship with my family got better. I told you a little bit, my mom and dad were divorced. My mom wasn't really a part of my life when I was five, until I was really 22, and because God had forgiven me much, he had given me now a heart to forgive my mother, and now we have a fantastic relationship. She flies up from Austin, Texas now to watch our girls all the time. We're really close. God changed things in my family. He changed the way I talked. In the past, in the wrestling room, if I get taken down, I'm not going to yell it out, but I would drop a lot of cuss words. Or I'd kick the wall. I'd be frustrated. There'd be a lot of anger inside of me. God began to change that in my heart. I started to think about all the music I had. When God changed my heart and I believe I became born again, a new creation in Christ, there was this whole music I had. I just started throwing a bunch of CDs away that had a bunch of junk on them that I didn't need to listen to. God changed my heart in in, in regards to how I saw females that realized that God created her in his image. That's his daughter. That's somebody else's daughter. That's somebody else's girlfriend or wife. Then God did not give me the right to look at her that way and think of her in that way. Again, that's why I was confident that I was a new creation in Christ because those things changed. But you know what else changed? I was at the Olympic Training Center. My wrestling changed because no longer was I addicted to winning where it was all about winning and I had to win to feel good about myself and I was like worshiping the winning and worshiping that counterfeit God of success. What I started viewing is like, hey, I'm gonna go to practice. I'm gonna have have fun today in practice. I'm gonna enjoy these gifts that God's blessed me with. I'm gonna work on my moves. I'm gonna get better, but I'm not gonna... Be addicted to this success temptation. I'm not going to allow winning to fulfill me and draw my value from that. So that next year, I went into 2000. That's when the Olympics were in Sydney, Australia. And just so you know in context, in 1999, when I was living for myself, I ended up getting sixth in the nation. Now you may say, wow, you were sixth in the nation? That, that's really good. I'm like, well, I mean, but if your goal is to be the Olympic champion, the best on the planet, sixth in the nation is actually not really where I wanted to be, okay? Doing it all on my own, sixth in the nation. As I begin to offer my life as a living sacrifice and be devoted to him, it was really interesting. I went into the 2000 National Tournament, and I was the number seven seed. And I remember going to that tournament, and a lot of my buddies came up to me, and there were a lot of guys that weren't living for the Lord, and they were like... Dude, what you're the seventh seed. What do you think about that? I think they were trying to like you know get underneath my skin. I was just like, Man. I was like, I don't I don't care if I'm the 17th seed, it doesn't matter. I said, I have a new plan. And they're like, oh yeah, what's your plan? I'm like, you ready for it? They're like, yeah, what is it? I said, I'm gonna do my best and I'm gonna let God take care of the rest. And they're like, that's your plan? I'm like, that's my plan. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I'm going to let God take care of the rest, right? So here's what happened. You know, with that, with that Christian biblical worldview, that motto that I believe is truthful, I went to that tournament. I pinned my first two guys. I beat the number two seed who I'd never beat before. I beat the number three seed who I'd never beat before, and I made it to the national finals. I was the first Texan to ever be in the U.S. Open national finals. I remember I was going into that match, had to wrestle a guy named Joe Williams from the University of Iowa, okay, and I was 0-4 against this guy. He's the number one seed, I'm the seventh seed, and I remember before the finals match, I remember just going, Lord, you know I want to be the national champion. You know I want to win this match. I've lost this guy four times. You know I want to beat him, but I'm going to give this up to you, and I'm just going to ask you that you give me the strength and courage just to wrestle through me and allow me to do my best and allow me to, to... glorify you, which I say is to draw attention to you. Draw attention to you, Lord. But if, here's the flip side. If I'm supposed to blow my knee out and not win, your will be done. So here we go. So I walked out, shakes hands, you know, we start wrestling. I get ahead 5-0. He comes back, scores a couple points. I end up winning the match 5-2, to become the national champion, Right? I remember, I remember giving my plaque, my national championship plaque. I was kind of, there was this exuberance that came through me, but I remember I just walked off the mat. I remember looking up, I was like, man, God, you can wrestle. I was like, wow. I try to do this, I get like sixth, you know? But wow. And so you can, you can understand there was a sense of um, awe, thankfulness, understanding, truth. And I took that with me into the Olympic trials. Olympic trials were in Dallas, Texas in 2000. What's interesting about that is that they'd never been in Texas before and I was the only Texan in the whole entire tournament. So that was kind of cool. There's about 800 people from my hometown of Amarillo that came down to Dallas. They were playing that country song, God bless Texas every time I walked out on the mat, right? It's just it was kind of cool, cool vibe. So I'm in the finals of the Olympic trials and I'm gonna be really honest with you. Before the finals, I was more nervous about speaking in public than I was wrestling. I was more nervous. There were 14,000 people there that night. I was more nervous that I was going to have to talk in front of 14,000 people than wrestling. And I started going out there and looking and going, okay, that guy made the Olympic team. Did they interview him? I'm like, nope, no interview. I'm like, oh, sweet. Right? I go back and look. Okay, he made the Olympic team. No interview. All right, good. After about three or four guys, they're not interviewing these guys. And I'm thinking, like, awesome. I can just focus on wrestling, right? Same prayer, but do my best. Like God, take care of the rest, Lord. Your will be done. I wrestle, win, make the team. Right when I make the team, all of a sudden I was on the, the wrestle mat was on this platform like this. Right when I make the team, I see this guy with the microphone coming up. Right, he's coming up, walking around the corner. I'm like, no. <laughs> He comes up to me, and you guys got to realize he could have asked anything. He said, hey, what was that last takedown that you just scored to win the match? You know, he could have asked me lots of things. But he comes up to me. He puts the microphone in my mouth. He says, Brandon. And he makes it even worse. What we want to know. He does this. It makes it even worse. And he goes, what we want to know. He said, where do you draw your strength from? Well, let me tell you what my first temptation was. Well, I lift four times a week. There's part of me that wanted to say, I create my own strength. But I knew that it was time. And this was the first time that I was really going to be bold, and it just happened to be in front of 14,000 people. And remember, I just said, he put the mic there. I said, I draw my strength from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? And I'll tell you what happened is actually the whole entire place started clapping, and they kept clapping, and they kept clapping. 45 seconds into it, they're still clapping. And I told all my buddies, like, well, if you win, are you going to cry? And, of course, I'm like, I'm not going to cry if I make the Olympic team. Right? And I take my little flag. I run out of there. I get behind everybody, behind these blinders. I slide down on this cement on my knee, and it's just waterworks. I just start bawling because I realized – that God had given me that strength, and it was from him. And it made it even more powerful. When I walked out of the the venue that night, I walked out, and there was people coming up, and they would talk to me, and and it was just so amazing. People would come up, and they'd say, hey, really good job making the Olympic team. I'm really proud of you. Then they'd say, what you said, my grandson got to hear that, and I can't tell you how thankful I am for your witness. And then there's somebody else that's come to say that. It was just this affirmation that this was capital T truth, that this was the real deal. It was authentic, genuine. It wasn't some lucky rabbit's foot they're rubbing to win, that this was touching people's hearts and it was global and it was eternal. And I took that same attitude in the Olympic games. And just for for time for not, I can't tell you every single story I have, but To go to the Olympic Games and represent our country, to put USA on my back, to represent the red, white, and blue was priceless. To be able to wrestle guys from Bulgaria and Russia and Kazakhstan and Turkey, Germany was amazing. The guy who wrestled from Russia actually, he hadn't lost in six years. He was the defending Olympic champion. His name was Buvasa Satiev. They called him the Russian nightmare. Had him the second match. He everybody thought he was gonna win. I got ahead 3-0. He came back 3-3, went overtime. I took him down, sudden victory overtime. That was just one of the most amazing memories of my wrestling career. It was really, really special to me. And kind of to put this together tonight, as I want to let you know that when you get up on the podium, and I've been dreaming of this since I was eight years old, actually. Saw the Olympics in LA and Los Angeles on TV, I wasn't there but I watched a lot of Americans win the gold medal in the sport of wrestling. And I don't know if any of you remember, but that was the year the Russians boycotted the Olympics. So that was great for (laughs) Team USA because we won lots of gold medals. So if you're a little eight-year-old watching wrestling, that was a great time to watch because I saw Bobby Weaver from Pennsylvania. I saw Randy Lewis. I saw Dave Schultz used to train, Fox catcher. I saw Mark Schultz. I saw Bruce Baumgartner. Gold medal after gold medal. And that's when I started dreaming of being an Olympic champion. And and vision envisioning seeing the Star Spangled Banner, and so to get up there and seeing the Star Spangled Banner and have that lady come up to me and I bent my head down and she put that gold medal around my neck and she said, "I'll never forget this." She said, "You will forever be Olympic champion." And I said this inside my head. I didn't say it out loud. I was like, I was like, I was like, forever. I was like, that's a long time to be the Olympic champ. Wow. I said that. But then immediately I was like, well, forever. I was like, what's really, really, really amazing is that I'll forever live in heaven with all my other brothers and sisters in Christ. God put that on my heart. So what I'll close with tonight is, is kind of what I would say. My, it's my battle cry that God's put on my heart. And anytime I have opportunity to share it, at events like this or anybody willing to listen to me is just to tell you that as much as that gold medal means to me, as much as it means to my family, as much as it means to my friends, as much as it means to my community, that I believe there's something so much greater. That there's a greater treasure. There's a greater reward. There's a greater G-O-L-D. And the greatest treasure, the greatest gold that I have in my life is not my Olympic gold medal. It's a personal relationship. With Jesus Christ. And nothing that I've experienced in my life has ever come close to fulfilling me except for him. And I say this humbly to you, is that God's allowed me to travel to over 40 different countries. He's allowed me to jump around the kangaroos. He's allowed me to swim with dolphins. He's allowed me to go to what I perceive as one of the best universities in the whole entire world, Ivy League school, to go to the Wharton School of Business, to to coach our Olympic team in London and Rio, to coach guys that won world and Olympic titles. He's allowed me to experience that myself, but I'm going to tell you what. Let me keep going. He's, in my opinion, allowed me to marry a gorgeous woman, to have four healthy kids. Like, there's just, he's blessed me abundantly, but I can tell you what, that none of that stuff, as amazing as it all is, specifically my family, none of those things fulfill me. And you know why? Because God rigged it that way. He rigged it that nothing on this earth will ever fulfill you except for him. That's the way that he rigged it. And some people, they think that the worldly success is gonna fulfill you, but I'm gonna tell you what, <laughs> if I have a bad day or I'm stressed or something or my wife and I have a little argument, we're not getting along, I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't run into my office and my gold medal's just kind of hanging over to the side of this desk. I don't grab my gold medal, put it around my neck, go look in the mirror and be like, Whew, whew, you're the Olympic champ. Don't forget that ever. You're the man, the myth, the legend. If you saw me do that, you would go something's wrong with that guy. You would. But what's interesting in our culture is that people live that way. They live with it. Once I win the gold medal, once I get that job, once I have that title, once I have that home, once I have that car. I'm, I'm single. Once I get married. Once well, I'm married. Once I have a kid. Once I have a boy. <laughs> Once I, I've never left the United States. Once I go outside the country, once I do this, once I do that, once I have this, Satan's constantly tempting us to eat, tr- eat the fruit from that tree, from that forbidden tree, thinking it's always going to fulfill us. But again, I'm here today to tell you that it never will. And the only thing that will ever fulfill you is having this genuine, authentic, 3D, real, clear relationship with the God of this universe who died for you on the cross, paid that wage so you would never have to pay it. And all he calls you to do is to genuinely believe in him and receive him into your life and serve him for all eternity. You can never, ever earn salvation. It's a free gift.